It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's always a joy to worship with you in song and now to open up God's Word into the book of 2 Corinthians. And Maggie is going to be reading our scripture out of 2 Corinthians chapters 12 and 13 today. So let's listen to God's Word. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a a burden, for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. And all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find um, you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty and awesome God, we're so grateful for your grace for your mercy, for your kindness towards us. God, we thank you for the gift it is to be together today. God, we thank you for your word, living and active. 
God, that reveals yourself to us and helps us to understand who we are in light of who you are. And so, God, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open up our minds, our hearts to understanding, to see and savor Christ today. And that as we go out of here, that you would encourage us that we could bring the aroma of Christ to those around us. God, we need you. We need your help. We thank you for your patience with us. And God, we pray that as we dive into your word, that you would encourage us today where we need to be encouraged, challenge us where we need to be challenged. And God, before we jump into your word, we also just want to pray this morning for all the teachers that are going back to school this week, some last week and some this week. God, we want to pray for all the students in elementary school and middle school and high school at private and public schools and homeschool. God, we pray that this school year would be one marked by great understanding and growing and knowledge of the world that we live in and how you've made it and how you've created it. But above all, I pray for each of those students, God, that they would have a greater knowledge of you. God, that you would help them to understand who they are in light of who you are. God, as kids go out into their different classes and different school environments, may they go understanding that their only hope is in Jesus and even represent you in the places that they go. And God, we pray for all the teachers and administrators that are part of this church. God, thank you for them. Thank you for how they serve. I pray that as they go into their environment to encourage and help students and families, God, that they would go, maybe under the cover of being a teacher or a principal or an administrator, God, but they would go as an ambassador for Jesus. God, would you encourage and equip them this year? May this be a great school year. We pray that it would be somewhat more normal this year for them. You would provide some continuity And God, we do pray for protection over students that are going into the classroom, that you'd watch over them, that you'd keep them healthy and strong. And God, we just continue to pray and plead that you'd bring an end to this virus. God, thank you for the time we have together now. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Speaking of school, I was a uh, communications major in college, not in the sense of journalism or public relations or marketing. I studied the theory of communication. I figured if I was going to do ministry, that might be a good thing to do, understand how to communicate with other people. And one of my favorite subject matters within my degree was studying and looking at interpersonal communication. You know, an interesting thing about interpersonal communication is we all think we're better at it than we probably actually are. In an article about her book called No One Understands You and What to Do About It, author Heidi Grant Halverson tells the story of her friend Tim. When Tim started a new job as a manager, one of his top priorities was communicating to his team that he valued their input. He wanted to make sure they understood that he really was listening to them. And so at team team meetings, Tim made sure to put on his active listening face to make sure they understood that he could signal to them that he cared for them and each person and what they were saying. But after a few meetings with them, Tim's team got a very different message. After a few weeks of meetings, Halverson explains, one team member finally summoned up the courage to ask the question that had been on everyone's mind. That question was, Tim, are you angry with us right now? When Tim explained, he wasn't angry at all, that he was really trying to listen to them, and he just had his active listening face on. His colleague gently explained to him that his active listening face looked a lot like his angry face. (laughs) Things like this happen a lot, don't they? We aren't always understood in the way we intend to be. And as you can imagine, that can lead to conflict. I'm sure you could think of many examples in your own life. Well, today is our second to last Sunday in the book of 2 Corinthians. 
a very personal and vulnerable letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, a church that Paul planted, a church that he cares deeply for, but a church that has shelved Paul to follow after more impressive and false teachers. As we come to our text today, we see that Paul really lays his heart and feelings out there because part of the problem that's going on with this church is that they've misunderstood Paul's motives and his intentions with them. So he concludes this letter as he prepares to come to them a third time. And he he wants to make sure, as he wraps this up, he wants to make sure they understand why he's doing what he's doing and where his real motivation lies. Now, this section, as much of this letter is, is very specific to Paul and the Corinthians. But there's something for us to learn in it as well. As he thinks about himself as a leader within the church and as he relates to them, we can learn something about that as well. Because I'm guessing that you've at least heard of, or maybe at different points in your life, had a problem with a leader within the church. See, in this text, Paul shows us through his example what a faithful church leader really looks like. A faithful church leader is a person who loves you, who is for you, and will gladly spend and be spent to help you follow Jesus. He gives us an example that's ultimately rooted in and motivated by the love and leadership of Jesus. So listen, if we take up what we see him do in this text and seek to apply it to our own lives, it will serve us not only as a church community, not only as a church family, but really in our relationships with others as well. It will help us, by grace, to be a community of grace, ultimately for his glory and for our good. So let's dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13 this morning, and may God bless the preaching of his word. To guide us through this text today, we're going to break it down into two points, love declared and love in action. Let's look at the first point, love declared. We see this in verses 11 through 19. Let me read verse 11 for us again. Paul says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Last week, we saw that Paul took up the foolishness of boasting that these so-called super apostles were doing. But in the midst of doing this, he put a twist on it. He boasted not in his accomplishments, not in his abilities or his accolades. He boasted in his weakness. So here in verse 11, he's once again acknowledging the foolishness of this. But he's also pointing out the fact that he had no other choice. He says, you forced me to it. Now, this isn't like when one kid hits another kid and it says, well, he made me do it. Right? He's not shifting blame on someone else here. He's seeking to declare his love for them. He's seeking to declare his care for them and the links that he's willing to go to make sure they actually understand that. See, the the Corinthians thought that the super apostles' stock was rising while Paul's was falling. And so he makes it clear, listen, I'm not inferior to them. I can go toe-to-toe with these guys. You've seen all the signs and wonders that apostles do. You've seen me do those things as I came and I planted this church. It's this role that I've taken up and you've experienced it firsthand because you were there. I was there at the inception of all of this. So Paul isn't inferior to them, he says, even though... He's nothing. Now, in saying this, Paul doesn't have a low view of himself. He just has a right view of himself. See, Paul wasn't impressed with these so-called super apostles. And Paul wasn't impressed with himself. And he was telling them they shouldn't be either because it really isn't about them. 
See, the church saw Paul do some pretty amazing things, yet, yet they rejected him and his leadership. They misunderstood his role. They misunderstood his purpose in their lives. I mean, some of them even thought that he had put them on the back burner, that he didn't really care for them much at all, that he wasn't giving them much attention, that he wasn't giving them the prominence that they deserved. Some of them thought that because he wasn't taking money from them or charging them, as we've seen throughout this series, he must not really care about them. Maybe he isn't really legit. So now, as he closes this letter up, he wants to make it crystal clear of what his motives and intentions are. Look at verse 14. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I love this. He's saying, I'm not seeking your money. I'm not seeking your possessions. I'm not even seeking your praise. I'm seeking you. I'm seeking you. See, Paul's like a spiritual father to the Corinthians. And so like a parent, he's telling them, look, I'm not here to be served by you. I'm here to serve you. I want to come alongside of you and help you. Paul wants them to think in child-parent terms, not patron-client terms. This might seem like a strange thing to do, but he's trying to show them how different his love is, how different his leadership is than from these false super apostles. Now to understand this, I think it might be helpful for us to go back to a verse that I didn't get a chance to zero in on last week in chapter 11, verse 20. So flip there in your Bible. Paul says this, he says, for you bear it with someone, bear it if someone makes you, makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. He's talking about the super apostles. This is the kind of leadership that they've displayed to the Corinthians. It's arrogant and it's domineering. It's even abusive. Now, this begs the question, if that's the case, if this is how these super apostles have treated the Corinthians, why in the world are they so impressed with them? Why are they going along with that? Well, part of the reason is because the Corinthians had a wrong criteria for leadership, for spiritual leadership within the church. They were drawn to narcissistic leaders. They were drawn to narcissistic leaders. But you know what? That isn't just a problem for the Corinthians. Chuck DeGroat, a professor and writer in his book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, says, within churches, a narcissist might be described as charismatic, gifted, confident, smart, strategic, agile, and compelling. Now, if someone has all of those gifts or some of those gifts, it doesn't necessarily mean they're a narcissist, but most narcissists have all of those gifts. And with that comes self-inflation and self-promotion and self-importance. And man, it's all over the place in the American church. And you know what? The thing is, we tend to go along with it because, hey, look at the fruit. Look at the good things God's doing through that leader. So the result, DeGroote stingingly says, is we have a culture of church members who would prefer a narcissist leading a church. See, church too often... We are captivated by people who are impressive, but not godly. What is a narcissist at his or her core? Again, from his book, DeGroote says the narcissist cannot tolerate the limitations of his or her humanity. 
And that's exactly what Paul's been getting at. It's exactly what he's been getting at. See, these guys aren't loving in their leadership. They're domineering and abusive. Their leadership is rooted in control. They want to be in charge. They want to have everything under their hands. And there's no category for limitation for them. There's no category for weakness. There's no category for the body of Christ working together along with the members in the church. It's leadership that's rooted in self. And what Paul's trying to tell the Corinthians, what he's trying to communicate to us is that's not the way of Jesus. So it's not the way of Paul. It's not the way he's seeking to treat them. No, instead, he says, look at the beginning of verse, 10, verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Now, what a beautiful picture. As compared to these super apostles, a beautiful picture of good and faithful shepherding, a good and faithful leader. And when Paul says spend and be spent, he isn't talking about financial resources. Paul's talking about his time and his energy, that he is willing to give of himself, to lay down his life for the Corinthians, to give of himself, not make it about himself. He's pouring out his life for them. Now, this is not in some unhealthy way where he doesn't have any boundaries or doesn't have the ability to understand his own limitations and need for rest. We already saw him boast in his weaknesses, but he's willing to pour out his life to invest in these people that he cares so deeply about. He's not going to phone it in. He's not going to phone it in. This is so different from these super apostles who are fine being elevated and lifted up and not willing to be a sheep among the sheep. See, where the super apostles care only about themselves, their fame, and their following, Paul cares about the fame of Jesus and helping the Corinthians follow him. Now, when Paul says he's gladly, will gladly be spent and be spent for the sake of their souls, this isn't hyperbole or rhetoric. Paul really means it, and he's really shown it to them. We've seen it throughout this series. He is a jar of clay, a takeout container who brings the treasure of the gospel of grace to them. And it's this very message of grace and its effect in his own life that allows him to not only feel this way towards them, but continually and consistently love and serve them in this way. See, Paul understands pursuing love. Paul understands persevering love because Paul's experienced it from Jesus. Think about Paul's story. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you're hearing it for the first time today. But Paul didn't always have this kind of perspective or thought or feeling towards the church. Paul hated Christians. He wasn't the lead pastor. He was the lead persecutor. He wanted to ridicule them and he came after them and he wanted to destroy them. But then you know what? Then Jesus invaded Paul's life. And he reoriented Paul's heart and he reoriented his zeal to no longer tear down the church but build up the church. See, Paul can spend and be spent for the Corinthians because Jesus did and does that for him. And the good news is, is that Jesus did and does that for you as well. I mean, we just sang about it. In tenderness, he sought me, weary and sick with sin, and on his shoulders brought me back to his fold again. Jesus was spent for you. Jesus died a heinous death in your place to remove all of your sin and all of your shame. He did it so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could have peace, so that you could be made new. And Jesus is our good shepherd 
who comes not in a domineering way, who comes not in arrogance or in an abusive way, but comes in humility and in love and in gentleness to lead you to still waters and green pastures. And some of you, I think, need to hear that today. We sang about it, but if you didn't get it in that song, I want you to hear it now. Jesus is a good shepherd to you. Some of you are going through difficulty right now. You're going through hard things right now. And he will not come and crush you. He's leading you to still waters. He's leading you to green pastures. See, what we see in all this is that Paul's model for ministry, Paul's model for leadership isn't something he read in the Harvard Business Review book. It's what he experienced and experiences daily and personally from his Savior King. Paul can love them like this because Jesus loves Paul like this. This is why this is so heartbreaking for him. He's sought to be like Christ to them. So we see this vulnerable statement in the rest of verse 15. He says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? The Corinthians aren't just not showing him love and respect. They actually think, we see in verse 16, that he's cheating them, that he's stealing from them. They think that as he talks about this gift that we saw in chapters 8 and 9, that really what Paul is doing is saying, well, I'm not going to take money for my ministry from you, but I'll take this gift and then I'll take some off the top. They think he's being deceptive in this, but Paul's emphatic that he nor Titus have ever taken advantage of them. Some of them think, well, I know what the real reason you're writing is. You just want to put us in our place. You just want to win the argument. You're just trying to defend yourself. But that's not the case either. Look at verse 19. Paul says, have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. This is why he's been doing and saying what he's been doing and saying. This is his real intention and motivation that's rooted in his love for them that he's declaring to them. Paul has been defending his calling and ministry not to win an argument, but to help them understand his deep love for them and their need for Jesus. This is his main purpose. This is the reason he's writing. He wants to build them up in Christ. Why? Because he loves them and he's for them. And he will gladly spend and be spent to help them follow the real and risen Jesus. See, all along the way, even as he's corrected them, Paul has always pointed them back to Christ, not to himself. And that should be the mark and goal of every leader within Jesus' church. Listen, I know some of you have been hurt by leaders within the church. And if that's the case, I'm really sorry for that. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad because it's not honoring to Christ. It's not loving. And it isn't how it should be. But don't let that keep you from connecting in community. You are not meant to live the Christian life alone. You're not meant to live it apart from the local church. It doesn't have to be here, but make it somewhere. Listen, here we certainly aren't perfect leaders. We don't get it right all of the time. We have and will make mistakes. We have and will hurt you or do hurtful things. But I want you to know that's not our heart. That's not our desire. It's never our intention. We love you and we are for you. And we want to help you follow Jesus. So if we have hurt you, or I should say maybe when we do, We need grace from you, but man, we also need you to come to us. We need you to come to us and talk to us. Give us an opportunity to apologize. Give us an opportunity to repent. 
Give us an opportunity for ask for Jesus' help to be humble, faithful leaders. It's not about us. It's all about him. Paul has declared his love for the Corinthians. What we now see in this next section in verses 20 through chapter 13, verse 10, is a picture of this love in action. This love in action. Paul tells the Corinthians three ways that he's going to build them up in love. And you know what? It isn't necessarily what we would expect. He tells them he will mourn over their sin. He will confront and call them to repentance. And he will test them and pray for their restoration. Look at verses 20 and 21. Paul says, For fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul says he's mourning over their sin. All of these things he's listed out in these verses are obviously sinful, but they uniquely tear apart communities. That was true then, and it's true now. That's what sin does. It attaches itself to relationships and destroys them, whether that be our relationship with God or with one another. It destroys relationships because it puts self at the center. Jesus told us the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our mind, our heart, our soul, and our strength. And a second command that's like it is to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love God and love others. But sin flips that, and it puts love of self above all. When we care about ourselves more than God and his good commands, when we care about ourselves more than others and their needs, we tend towards jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip. Paul's afraid that when he comes to them, he'll find some of them still living in these things, along with sexual immorality. Some of people will still be walking in unrepentance. And if that's the case, it's going to lead him to mourn. That's his first response to that. It's the heart, his loving heart of a shepherd towards them. His heart will be broken over their sin. See, in love, Paul mourns over their sin. But in love, he also will confront them on it. And call them to repentance. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 13. He says, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He's not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. You know, sometimes my kids think that when I talk to them or correct them about their attitude or their behavior, that I'm being mean. Tell me that. They say, you're just being mean. We can be tempted to think the same way, can't we? But listen to me, correction isn't the absence of love, nor is love the absence of correction. Correction certainly can be mean, but that's not its nature. It's nature if we think it and do it in the right way with a pure heart, correction is actually very loving. 
See, Paul's confronting and correcting the Corinthians. He's calling them to, rep- to repentance precisely because he loves them. It's actually for their good. It's love in action. They needed that. The Corinthians needed that. And we do too. See, we can struggle with this because I think a lot of us like to think we're more self-aware than we actually are. And we like to think that we have our struggles and our life under control more than we do. The world around us isn't going to help us, but instead will approve of a life that's set against God and his ways. That's why you and I don't just need faithful, loving leaders within the church, but need faithful, loving community. See, sometimes we're blind We're unaware of the dangerous path that we're on. We're going along the road with signs all along the way that say bridge out ahead, but our heads are stuck in our phones or the newspaper. We need someone to point that out to us, and it's humbling. It's humbling when somebody points something out to you that you think you know better, you know yourself better than someone else can see. Something that's always been helpful for me to think about that of why it's a good thing, a loving thing, is if you have something in your teeth or your fly is down, you probably don't know. But man, isn't it loving for a friend to say, hey, something right there. Or hey, check your pants. Right, it's humbling. We don't like to think that way. But man, we are so grateful for that person being willing to say that thing to us. We need people around us in community to help us do those kinds of things to call us back into the light, to call us to keep striving to faithfully follow Jesus. Now listen to me. We need that, but that doesn't mean that we go on sin hunts in one another's lives. Right? We're not going to go after people and be like, you know, he told me to tell you some things. I don't know what those things are, but I'm going to figure it out. No, we don't go on sin hunts in one another's lives. But because we love one another, when we see something, we say something. We see something that might be a little bit off or we see someone starting to wander away from Jesus into the ways of the world. We go to them in love and we point those things out. So as you do that, start by praying. Pray for them. Pray for yourself. Mourn over your sin and their sin. And when you do say something, make sure it's accompanied by I love you and I'm for you and I'm not going anywhere. That's what we commit to one another in church membership. In our membership commitment, number 10 says this, we will exercise affectionate or loving care and watchfulness over one another, gently correcting and restoring one another when needed. See, when you sign that paper, when everyone signs that piece of paper, we're saying to one another, I will help you and you will help me to keep fighting for joy and faith to follow Jesus. Real love tells the truth with love. And that's what we see Paul doing It's what we can do as well. See, Paul is sober-minded as he considers the way that they may be walking, they may be in unrepentance. He hopes that's not the case, but he knows that through him, the crucified and risen Jesus will speak in power and in love. See, Paul isn't coming to crush them, to build himself up. He's coming to restore them and build them up. We see that in these next few verses. Verse 5, Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul's told the Corinthians about his love for them. Now he gives them a a command. He says, examine yourself, test yourself. And this too is love in action. 
See, he's not trying to cause the person who's unsure about their salvation to worry, but those whose lives don't evidence genuine faith to consider if they actually are in Christ or not. The person who says with their lips they follow Jesus, but it's not evidenced in their lives. So how can you examine yourself? You can ask yourself. You can ask community. Does my life evidence Jesus is at the center of it? That he's Lord, that he's king, not me. Now this doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with sin. All of us will continue to struggle with sin until Jesus comes again or calls you home. The truth of the gospel, though, says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The grace of God covers all of your sin. So this doesn't mean you're not going to have sin in your life. What it means is that you're starting to look less and less like the world and more and more like Jesus as you strive to fix your eyes on him. Paul isn't trying to say you can't have an assurance of salvation. You can have an assurance of salvation, but it isn't about what you do. It's about your present faith in the risen Savior, who he is and what he's done. That's what Paul wants for the Corinthians. He's pointing them back to Christ. He's calling them again to have real faith in the real and risen Jesus. And that's been his golden mission all along. So he says, verses 8 through 10, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, for the gospel. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. These verses really bring these two sections together, love declared in love and action and the whole book to a concluding point. See, tyrannical leadership that demands its own way is not loving, loving or honoring to Jesus, but neither is an unwillingness to address sin in foolishness for fear of making someone upset. Paul gets that. So he humbly calls them to turn again to truth, to turn again to the gospel The gospel is always about restoration, and Paul's ministry is always redemptive in nature. There's something key we can learn from this in our own lives and for our church. Paul's showing us a way to balance between the extremes of hovering authoritarianism, the super apostles are putting on display, and disengaged individualism. He says, I don't need anybody else. It's just me and Jesus. The Christian life is meant to be lived in committed community, a committed community that's a loving community rooted in grace and truth. Church, the balance point is Jesus. It's Jesus. And when Jesus, his words and his ways are at the center of our life together, we'll have the makings of a healthy church and a healthy community. Paul's love for the church is clear because he's endured with them. I mean, think about that. He could have given up on them. He could have walked away, especially because of how they've been treating him, but he didn't. He sticks with them. Why? Why does he do that? Because Jesus didn't give up on Paul. So Paul's not going to give up on them. And we won't give up on you. This is the heart of a faithful shepherd. It's the heart really we can have towards anyone. No one is too far gone. No one is out of reach of grace. Jesus saves to the uttermost. Above all, 
what Paul wants for the Corinthians, what every pastor elder, both staff and non-staff here at Redeeming Grace Church, what we want for you is your growth to maturity in Christ. To see the grace of Jesus restore what sin has destroyed. A restoration, a renovation of your heart and your life. We want you to keep going and keep growing. Church, that's our motivation. That's our aim. We love you and we are for you. And we also will gladly spend and be spent for you to see that come to be. So together, may we keep Jesus at the center and in love continually call one another back to him for his glory and for our good. Amen.